I'm standing in a street in Manchester, outside Tesco's. Yeah, I know. It's that sort of grey five o'clock time, drizzly. I actually wanted to get home, see the kids. wasn't going to happen because I had a really important job to do. I was trying to track down a woman called Myra. Myra was a machinist who trained all the other machinists in the factory that once was the beating heart of an area in Middleton. It was where their parents had worked and it was a little ecosystem of business that fed the community as well as the business's profits. That day when I was standing there, those factories had all closed down. They'd gone. In the chase for cheaper manufacturing. In the chase for us to make more stuff, cheaper, and pile up more stuff that would eventually end up in landfill somewhere. But I was here because I believed that we could bring back production to the UK, that we could create a heartbeat back again in these factories and that we could create a product that had value, longevity, but more importantly, gave jobs and a sense of purpose to the people who work there. But here's the problem. I didn't know any machinists who could train these people all these out-of-work young people that I wanted to give a job to. They weren't there anymore. But Myra, I'd heard, was working at Tesco's, stacking shelves. And so I waited until I saw her. And we created a factory. And we created some knickers. And we employed people, young people who had never worked, nor had their parents for a whole generation. And we created not only a product, More than that, we'd created a sense of self. The values at the heart of our companies, the people running them, the things they commit to, they have a huge impact because everything and everyone is interconnected. Covid taught us that. We've been forced to think more widely and deeply and longer about the effects of our individual actions than we ever have. And now we're seeing a change in how companies are working and the values that they're now embodying. For years, it was about short-term, rapid thinking. But this new breed of business is combining this with slowing down, going deep, planting those trees that they just might not sit beneath, with roots so deep that they'll never see how far they travel, but they do know their impact may be felt for generations to come. This is the future. Recognising that we all play a part of an interconnected whole is vital for businesses of tomorrow. Honouring it will not only help others, but ourselves too. And for us as individuals, the businesses we buy into or we work with, and the values at the heart of them are absolutely key. I'm Mary Portas, and this is The Kindness Economy. We'll be back after these few words. 
Kindness Economy podcast is supported by BT and its Small Business Support Scheme. Now, who's this coming down the line? Hello, it's Carenza Jennings from Northfields. I'm BT's Digital Impact Director. Carenza, what a beautiful name. Where's that from? Thank you. It's, it's actually the Cornish word for love. Oh, see, here we are, love and kindness. Carenza, this isn't going to be difficult for you at all. <laughs> you tell me, what are you in your love and within your role at BT doing to help drive the kindness economy. I run the the digital impact side of the business. So it's all about trying to help people make the most of life in the digital world. And the Small Business Support Scheme run by BT has got a huge confidence component, helping people with their digital skills. And we're, we're aiming to help 1 million businesses over the next few years develop that confidence to take up that digital adoption and feel a lot more um, prepared to take their businesses online and hopefully, hopefully survive and thrive. I know, isn't it amazing, though, that that is the big thing so many small businesses thought no I, I can't do this I can't and you said actually you can I'm loving that one Carenza you can find out more about the support that's on offer from BT by visiting bt.com forward slash small business support later in the show my guest is Sebastian Pohl from that great brand Pucker Teas and that word Pucker well it reminds me of my great team down under in Australia and who is calling me from the other side of the world down the zoom pipe hi Mary it's Luke what a segue I love that (laughs) Luke introduce yourself let the world know what you do so I'm Luke I've been with Porters for like I realise it's a decade this year, and I'm the uh, creative director in Melbourne. So, Luke, Luke, what have you seen out there or on your travels? Well, actually, no travels, but what have you seen that's really been the kindness economy in action? Well, I've got like a couple of examples, and one I'm not going to lie, I'm slightly biased of, and then the other is um, someone further afield. And the one that's further afield, or actually, I suppose both of these, they're where they've really put the kindness economy principles into their product. So they've got well-made, well-priced offerings, but with a real commercial viability to it and provides like a real strong reason to buy. The first is this industrial design company that I sort of stumbled across called Forma. And they've only been around for like nine months. It was started by a guy called Gary in the US. And... um. Uh, each year, I believe it's 600 million tons of waste um, is taken from construction sites. And about three quarters of that can get recycled, glass, metal, etc. But that still leaves 145 million tons of just landfill rubbish. But what he's done is he's decided to pick out the best pieces and craft um, industrial design pieces for the home from that. So we're talking tables, laptop stands, phone stands. And just these sort of waste sort of remnants have been given a second lease of life in just a cool product. But more than that, he works specifically with people who have been recently incarcerated and who are coming out of prison. So essentially, there's a lot of prisons that have workshops and people learn these new skills when they're inside. And he's brought them now into his company. And it's about working with organizations to offer real pathways into offering um, 
careers and opportunities for people to re-establish themselves into this new sort of the new life post prison so it's sort of the idea of using product to not only sell and be commercially viable but lift up and provide opportunities to the people that really need it and i was just like yes to heartwarming vibes of the story i love that because what what i mean a it's about social progress as well which we often talk about in the kindness economy and on our reports social progress you're actually doing something well a incredible beautiful recycling and making furniture out of rubble wonderful creativity at the center of that but that social progress for you know people coming out of prison who trying to get jobs is really really difficult I just love that and hopefully in return it goes back into the prisons then doing more of that training and, and training people in these skills so that they do go out imagine if so many construction companies do that I love that love that love that anything else Luke well, it's so nice because just on that, there was like someone that had been in for 45 years, comes out really loving this new way of working and decides to create their own art sculptures off the back of it. And now they're being exhibited in MoMA and the Library of Congress in the US. So it's like, yeah, there's like, there's interesting outcomes of this. It's just like, they know what they're doing. But it's just like such a good way of like, on multiple levels, infiltrating kindness, but in a way that's commercially viable, which is also the second one. So this is... um. I'm very biased. There's a street label brand that I've probably talked to you about before here called Homie based in Melbourne. And they're someone that we've done a bit of pro bono strategy work because I love them so much. They do like streetwear, um, sort of like basics, but like elevated and cool. They'll work with like local screen printers. They'll use upcycled pieces um, and repurpose it for like Melbourne Fashion Week and overprinted and it's just like shit hot good vibes they actually also did like a tie-dye um sort of mini uh set that I got for Christmas so literally on Christmas day I had a white hoodie and I was like tie-dyeing it like in all shades of like pink and blue and now I've just like made a mess of our bathroom so I probably won't get my bond back from that but you know we'll cross that bridge when we get to it anyway I, I digress they um, whole reason for being is to work with the at-risk youth who are sort of facing hardship and homelessness and it's to offer them I believe it's a seven-month uh, program where they learn everything about the retail operations of Homey so that when they've graduated from their seven-month program they'll go and work in um, retail opportunities up and down the country and I think we've put them in touch with Lost Post and I think they're just doing like amazing things um so it's really about not only producing shit hot product but using that for social kindness and giving opportunities to people that need it and then like finally what I really what really like I was like hand clap emoji was when uh COVID was rearing its head here they created a wait list for um face masks and so when they had an, an, the right sign up they produced bespoke face masks I'm sure there was no wastage of product but then for everyone that was purchased they built their pricing structure so one was given to a, a homeless person so for every like one you bought you were also providing one for someone that needed it and you just see like around town 
other cool people that sort of like if you know you know you get like a lot of people coming up to the bars and be like oh yeah i know that label i've seen that logo before and it's just like a real brand warmth that melvin has around this label oh see that is just so wonderful that sort of magnetism that brand magnetism that goes with doing something so good with design at the heart with creativity at the heart with giving jobs to people who wouldn't have had a break social progress innovation so pay what you can afford for the mask as well all of these things which normally businesses would find utterly scary to control here's the thing we have to let go we have to stop the control and what's so wonderful is you take the first step on doing something and the work creates what your brand is rather than this real structure of where you're going to take your business i love it it evolves and it takes an energy of its own Luke, it's gorgeous to talk to you. Sebastian Pohl was a very accidental kind of entrepreneur, a herbalist who wanted to educate as many people as possible about the healing power of plants. He answered an ad in a magazine placed by a man called Tim Westwell, who was looking for a partner in an ethical business. After scraping together their savings, Sebastian and Tim started making herb teas, and I bet most of you have a packet of pucker in your cupboard today. Now, the core of pucker, of course, is herbs and their healing properties, but there's also a far larger vision at work from protecting and nourishing the planet that produces the herbs to valuing the people who are growing them and harvesting them. Environmentalism and human decency are at the heart of Pucker. Sebastian is passionate about business, working in harmony with planet and people. And he thinks there's never been a better time for all you would-be entrepreneurs out there to start up your own. Let's dive in. Look at you with your little pucker tea, tea mug. That's a mug with your pucker design on it, isn't it? It is. It's with our with a hornbill on from a project we have in India, a wild harvesting project that is uh, taking care of a large acre of forest where we harvest herbs. And uh, there's the hornbill. Because I just asked, I'm, di- I'm digressing because this is what I do, but pucker, it sounds so Australian, mate. Is it? What, what does pucker mean? It's an Indian word that means uh, authentic or ripe or best quality. Well, it's great to meet you. Now... Obviously, my, this this podcast is called The Kindness Economy. And, you know, um, me and my team have written a, a piece of work on this, looking at how we're living in the world and how we're going to be buying and selling in the future and hoping that we're going to be a kinder place to be. And one of the questions that I always ask everybody is, can you think of any or, or talk to us about an act of kindness that someone did to you in business? You know, and the, there's some great people in life, but business... Sometimes there hasn't been too much kindness in it. But can you think of anything? Oh, man, I mean, for me, so many things have happened that have been, you know, kind and generous to me through setting up Pucker. It's just been a continual journey of meeting interesting people that have inspired us on our way. You know, I remember in my early days and the boss of a big business I worked for sacking someone. And he says, don't take it personally. This is business. And you think, you serious, mate? And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, you can't take this person, this is business. But what you've just said is, I've made friends. And business, good business, is a mutual respect 
and friendship comes it into does. it. It does. I mean, the idea that emotion shouldn't have a place in business is just folly. It's just totally stupid. Yeah. And people have said that to me before. Oh, you know, you're too emotional. You know, this is business. We need to be straight. And there is a bit of a place for keeping your head and heart balanced. You can't have it too out of control either way. Yeah. But that's part of the fun is making relationships, not just with your uh, distributors and your people that are buying products from you, but your whole value chain. You know, for me, my role at Puck has been visiting lots of farmers, establishing our organic network, setting up our fair trade path. So it's a whole continuum, really. That's interesting you talk about value chain because um, this is something that we've put into the Kindness Economy report that um, the, what I called the double V, you know, what is value today? Values and value, which are the two key tenets, I believe, is what we need to be looking at, you know, it, uh, going forward. And one is values that we as humans have in, in business, doing it well around principles, responsibilities, sustainability, all that kind of fairness and then there's value it's worth or it's usefulness right and often people just see value we've been we've been fed that value is around price that 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 is you know especially you know in um, sort of high consumerism yeah. how cheap how quick and how price how do you and I'm, I'm going to go right in on a pricing thing your tea for example your little tea bags are about five times I know that of a pg tips right yeah, yeah, are they, they are. Yeah, 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 sure. yeah, yeah. So, so people go, I can't afford that. That's not good value. But talk to me. And by the way, my daughter hangs them out to dry. If ever I go into her flat, she has pucker tea bags <laughs> hanging out. She reuses them two or three. They're that times. good. You get that much value out of a pucker tea. You can drink them two or three times. No joke. Uh, it is true though but sometimes I say Verity that water looks completely white now there's no tea left she goes I know but I've got a puck of tea bag it's the fifth use I'm, okay. j- I'm joking but That's anyway fine. talk to me about that how you've been able to and why the pricing is the way it is and what the values that your brand brings I th- you know we know that we've externalised 50% of all the costs of food so every time you spend one pound on any ingredient There is a one pound on cost to society in terms of environmental degradation, pollution and ill health. So so there was a study done by the Sustainable Food Trust, uh, which is a charity out of Bristol. And it looked at the cost of food, the real cost, because what we've done is by using nitrogen, pesticides that are damaging the environment, for example, um, you you get a, a cheaper ingredient that is lower in price. So in perception of higher value to consumers, but actually there is an on-cost that we're all paying through ill health or through environmental uh, uh, reparations Mm. you have to do. Degradation. And then the cost of the reparations. So Mm. that's just my starting point, is that I think we've externalised the cost of um, a lot of the production in our world today, whether it's in fashion or food or or electronics. And so one of the things we've done at Pucker from the very outset is we wanted to make sure that we looked after our planet and our people in the, in the pursuit of making a profit. That was the whole sort of idea. I mean, we were very naive. You know, we started in my kitchen and Tim Westall, my business partner, in his spare bedroom with a, you know, a few thousand pounds. So we, we were quite a, a basic startup, if you like. But our principles were strong and we wanted to do something that would bring true value. And so by making all of our plants organic, so all the herbs we buy are organic from the outset, there is a, a potentially a lower yield for some of organic production and a, and a higher cost of production from labour. 
So that was one extra cost. And then we wanted to make sure that in the countries where there were, should we say, not such robust labour laws as we might have in, in parts of Europe, um, that, that we would redistribute some of that revenue through being fair trade. And so in, in countries, whether it's, I don't know, Vietnam or India or whatever, we, we've got various fair trade products that we buy through a scheme called Fair for Life. So everybody in your value chain, Mary, you have to certify each factory to make sure that there is equal gender, treatment, equal pay, you know, hygiene, etc. What do you say to that? Because that's a, a really important point there. And I, I wrote this down, you know, as, as one of my questions to you. How do you ensure? Because I'm so over these businesses being caught out, you know, that factory workers in their supply chain are being underpaid. And they go, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know. We're, we're going to investigate. These are massive corporations. And I just think, and all the press are very, you know, they pull them out a bit, but it sort of stops there. And then they go, yes, we, we've investigated. We'll make sure this doesn't happen again. How can they not see that? That's just, that's just balls, isn't it? And, and it how is. do you, yeah, ensure your supply chain is well treated? It's like marking your own exam. You know, I'd love to have done that. I'd have done really well at school if I'd marked my own exam. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't. Um, you, you've got to have third-party certification, I think. It's the only way to get an objective view into what's going on in these big industries, whether it's chocolate or fashion or tea or, or herbs. You know, you, you've got to have a, another independent auditor, I think, that can help you as a company learn. I found it incredibly educational going through fair trade certification, for example, looking at gaps. We thought we were doing a good thing, but, you know, you learn along the way and, and, you, and you improve. So I think third-party is really crucial. I think... It is a challenge for all companies. I don't, you know, can't just sort of paint everybody with a black mark because um, it's difficult to know everything that's going on, you could say, but you want to build relationships with your partners in that value chain so that their values are the same as your values and mm. that they would be treating people in the way that you would expect and that they can understand the needs of your market as well because, you know, there are costs that people, you know, we need to comply with in, in a business sense. And so... You can you can distribute that responsibility if you like, and that's that's the whole purpose of having a value chain that is a uh, one built on relationships. Yeah, and that has true value at the heart of it. Uh, anyway, just going back to you because um, starting up, so many of this next generation I was talking about that have just such a great vision and, and belief and, and a, a pureness that certainly I was so blinded to when I went into business. But I'm always surprised when I talk to to you know young and I do a lot today I'm speaking to a young lad who's 20 later on about you know what he should be doing in, in work but so many of them are scared to just go into these new markets because of not the money being there and how do you start up and how, how do you they're, they're frightened and they, they go into the corporations they're bright they're educated they, well, well I might as well do that I might as well go into that because it's safe go back to those days with you at the table how, you know how safe did you feel was there a time where you thought what am I doing tell me the story of that well I was a herbalist and a yoga teacher, so I was earning money that way. And I was recently qualified. I was sort of 25 or something like that. Where were you living? Uh, down uh, outside Taunton in Somerset. Oh, of course. Uh, in, in a caravan. <laughs> in a caravan. Um, working on an uh, organic herb farm. And I, I just knew that through treating people individually I'd only be able to reach a certain number of people and I, I felt it was so weird we only drank three ingredients we drank black tea coffee and cocoa in the UK and I was like there, there, are, there are you know tens of thousands of delicious tasting plants 
why aren't we drinking a wider variety? And I, I knew that if you uh, grew the herbs properly, blended them in a way, there's a special way of blending herbs so they, they taste right, and uh, you made it do good. We could bring something really special to the market that wasn't there. It was a time of lots of fruit teas. You probably remember. Oh, I hated the... those. Yeah, no. Same as fruit candles. Oh, I don't want to be yeah, smelling they... a burning bit of old blackberry in the corner. No, I want natural. Exactly. It looked it looked nice, but it didn't taste good. And so, you know, I took it as a personal offence as a herbalist that this was not <laughs> doing justice to the plants, and and you know, it was growing up in a time when. There was a, you know, increasing awareness about the environment and the future of the planet. And I thought, right, this is what I want to do. So for me, it was a really deep sense of vision and purpose. And I, I wasn't really, you know, I didn't have any business experience. I, um, I just knew it was the right thing. And I think that is a different thing to trying to achieve something in a way. You know, I just knew I had to do it. I wasn't trying to, you know become X percent of the market. You know, Tim and I, we literally knew nothing about market share. We just didn't do any of that at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's a sort of distraction. You know, I'm, I'm anti-data so big I. time because although it's, as though it's mm. useful, it's like, well, as soon as you got the data, you're behind the curve. So in, in reference to the young, uh, passionate people that want to bring around change, I, I would say go for it. You know, there's never been an easier time to set up a business where you've got access to markets and your own independence. And I would say, you know, get advice and get support, but basically find something that really gives you energy and go for it. You know, that's what I would do. That's going to bring the change. What, what you've just said there is, and it's interesting because everybody that I've been speaking to on, on this podcast, they just, this energy, they went with this belief. There was something there that they just followed. And we've been so... Um, we've been so put into a sort of silo of belief that this is how you work, this is what you do, and it just seems now we're breaking these down. I can feel it. I can feel it. Um, they're called the plastic hours. Gershom, and I never forget his, his surname, talks about this. This is the time to act now. I know we're in a time of trauma and pain, but you can feel this change coming. So I'm sure you'd, you'd say with me to all those young people listening, just go out and do it and don't listen to the old ways, the corporations, and just, just ignore them. Ignore it. We're going to start a revolution. It's basically history, isn't it? That yeah, way it's of, history. That way of doing business that is a yeah. sort of top-down hierarchical. You know, it's not... It's, we need to look at a more nature-based system where we're looking at a way of using nature's processes and sort of life-affirming uh, mechanisms to help us fulfil our purpose, really. And that... You've just got to follow simple patterns. You know, it's, things should be in a loop. Nature is circular. Things get taken out and they go back in. So all the food we buy should be from a source that is regenerative and goes in a circle. All the electricity we buy and the energy we buy should be in a circle. And I think we need a, you know, it's a two-way thing. You need a structural change. So we need government to make the right policies to enable it to happen. But basically we need a, the people, us, to make the changes that we can, even, you know, the smallest to the biggest and that, that's what will create the, the shift, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, I was talking to James at Brewdog and he said, I don't have any belief in government. And I'm with him. I'm sorry. Just how slow they've been. They've known all this stuff for years, for God's sake. You know, we can still keep banging on. And when is the day that they're ever going to talk the truth and answer an honest question? So we're slightly given up on that. So we believe, and I think you do, the power is going to come from us, the people. And, you know, as I always say, every pound is a vote. Whatever you choose to spend it on the way you want to live. And we really need to think about that. And I think... 
one of the things about you know you've got ethics, but it's it's a philosophy more than ethics at the at the, the centre of your business. And do you find that a constant evolution? I mean, you're having to keep up with that, or is it because it's so simple and pure? It's just follow it. I mean, you're a bit of a hippie, let's face it, aren't you? And, Maybe, you know. but you know, I don't want to simplify it too much. You know, we might have yeah. some nice ideals and a good vision, Mary, mm. but the you know the reality on the ground is it's nitty gritty, and we're dealing with yeah, you know, supermarkets. Supermarkets, import regulations, you know, yeah. you know, health claims. You know, we can't even tell people what some of the herbs that we sell do, even though they've got a long history of use. There's, you know, great restrictions on many of the uh, claims. And, you know, it, what drew us to this as well, as along with there being an environmental, should we say, crisis, because it is, is there is a health crisis, not just COVID as such we're talking about, but in terms of the yeah. obesity epidemic, diabetes, uh, chronic degenerative disease and coming from a health background that was my interest to join the two together really the health and the environment they obviously are related and so if we can bring that to people through a simple cup of tea we could help add that into people's lives now listen a big part <clears throat> it's the same I think the biggest issue that we have that um, I think the food business is further ahead than the fashion business by far I mean, we, we, uh, by far, and people are understanding what organic does. They're understanding what it does to your body. But to be honest, all these certification and initiatives, they can get confusing for the average person who's just bunging stuff in the trolley. It really is. <clears throat> How do we know when we're looking at this stuff, though, which companies are really doing good? Because that is the most difficult thing. When I was doing research for this, I said, oh, get me those people on. And then my team would come back and go, oh, God, not quite, you know, not quite pucker. <laughs> no, they're not quite. Astray. How, how does, um, and we were finding that, I've got, you know, social anthropologists, researchers working. How do we know which company's doing good? And how does the average person who's buying become a better consumer? It is a bit of a minefield. I think there are a couple of key certifications. Um, there's obviously uh, organic certification is the most standard one, although I reckon in understanding the UK, it's it's almost a bit of a pejorative, yeah. isn't it, basically organic, because it's seen as elitist. But actually, it's the fairest and most and the kindest way of farming and of buying and eating food, because it really does look after the planet and biodiversity and uh, the quality of the food and the welfare of the animals. Um, there's then B Corp, which you know about, Mary, you know, this idea of B Corps where you commit to not just being in the pursuit of profit, but also social and planetary benefit. That's a, a good thing to look out for. You know, the fashion industry's really got to get going on it because cotton, for example, is one of the largest uh, contributors to biodiversity loss in the world. And, and that's because so much cotton is genetically modified and, and, and the high usage of pesticides. So there is an urgent need for a shift. And um, you're, the, you're the person to, to help that happen there. The, the food is really slow. You know, in the UK, we're so driven by cheap food. You know, it really is disturbing. You know, we're, we're subsidising the poor quality food that is uh, damaging the environment. And we're rewarding companies that are selling poorly nutritious food so you know that, that is damaging the environment so it's, it's really is an issue how do you because it's like when I, I i put up stuff on my social and i get people coming back and i'm saying you know think about shopping local sometimes just just giving back to the local economy the smaller and so many people write and go i can't afford to mary i can't afford to this is the big thing isn't it you know how, how do we balance this? I mean, I think back to my childhood, one of five kids, working class family, and my mum, you know, never, ever bought processed food or anything. She always bought fresh. 
and we afforded, I had secondhand clothes because it was a social acceptance as well. Mm. I mean, but how do we break through this? This has been so at the heart of society, cheap value, cheap value, fashion, food, look what you can get. I think it's a bit of a British issue, really. We've been driving it for years. I think the only way to solve it is to tax the polluter. We've got to make the polluters pay yeah. urgently. Yeah. And we, I don't know how this works exactly, but we should take some of that tax and subsidise uh, uh, healthy food in, in areas of the country where there is limited access to sort of unpackaged, highly processed food yeah. and, and make that an incentive. That is the way we have to change things because at the moment... Paco, where our first office was, we were in a part of Bristol called Hawkfield, which is quite a, you know, potentially, you know, socially challenged area. That there was just no healthy food to buy anywhere. Literally, you had to drive miles to buy find healthy food, and so uh, we have to find a way to get healthy food into these local communities and shops. And that, for me, needs a subsidy, not an oil subsidy, but a food subsidy. No, that's such a great point because I remember when I used to be filming, and I'd end up in towns often that were quite deprived. You know, um, and I'd say, they'd say, what for lunch? And I'd look round and I'd, and it would be just just depressing what the offer was. And I'd look and think, why, why does this have to be so bad in these areas that we've got shops like this? There was always a bargain, bargain, a booze place put in there. And it's so true. You know, it's so easy for me sitting here in my leafy part of North London thinking what I've got on my doorstep. But we, these people don't have it, these people, people, most people don't have it. How do we get that change? And I think that is absolutely a great, well, I think that's the, the, the answer there. And we do need to get government to think, and local government to think this way. What are we putting into local communities where they can have fresh fruit and vegetable shops that are local there that actually can compete on price. You know, there's exciting initiatives around the country. There are some quite good sort of local community agricultural projects, local food systems. Yeah, Yeah. and direct to consumer from the farms has been great. I've seen in lockdown, which has been such a good thing. I mean, you know, lockdown's woken that up a bit, hasn't it? There's a bit, for some people, there's a bit more time at home, more time to cook, maybe more time to make fresh food. That's an advantage. And you you know that's good for your health. You know, we know that there's been you know, these anxieties around the environment, uh, health, you know, they're leading to people's other health issues. You know, the people becoming insomniac, people, you know, rise in anxiety. It's, we need to look at it in an integrated way and that our, our food and our, our clothes and our job, they shouldn't be seen as sort of separate things. We need to find a way to help people make the right choices because that is what's mm-hmm. so hard. And our, our pound is a political vote. It is the choice for the world we want in the future. But like you said, it's a bit of a minefield to know what to buy. And yeah. I, I really think that it, it's got to be two ways. You do need legislation from government. Otherwise, we're not going to get some of the macro decisions we need on energy transfer, for example. But you need companies, and I'm very hopeful of the younger generation, to have businesses that they, they run in the way that people can... Yeah, flourish in that environment, really, and, and create mm. a new way of being. That's that's what I, you can mm. see the change in veganism, you know, sort, whether you agree with it or not, at least it's a people being conscious about how they're eating and choosing their food. Mm. No, I've seen the big shift on this. I've got I've got hope in food. It's just the pricing. But I think even chatting to you, it's given me ideas because um, I'm looking at a piece of work on how we can create, you know, this social infrastructure of communities. When I talk about local high streets, it's a place where people feel safe. They can mm. pop up, they can buy mm. this. But if they don't have those shops that feed 
what you're talking about is a, a, a well-being lifestyle, every part of it, then th- you're already tripping up and it's just, it's just deeply unpa- unfair to parts of society. Going back on you being bought out by Unilever, didn't you? Talk to me about that. Okay, I mean, are, are they changing? Do you see them as a big corporation where you can have influence? I can understand if you're bought out by a, a big global corporation like Unilever. There'll be some things that you go, oh God, not sure I like the way they're working on that. How did you feel when they approached you? Um, well, you know, we, we were out looking, basically. We were out looking and engaging because we right. needed some investment. And right. We were in a very privileged position that we had become the fastest growing uh, organic tea company in the world. And we got to a place that we'd never imagined we'd get to. And I, you know, mm-hmm. Tim and I, we just thought, what's the way we could make the biggest impact in the shortest space of time? And, and actually, it was through, you know, entering the, the sort of dragon's lair, if you like, and, and engaging with a group of people that are already making huge shifts. And if, and if, the, if the big corporations and big companies in the world don't make the big shifts we need. We, t- we, can, we can eat all the organic and X, Y, Z stuff we want to do. That's not going to make any difference. And, you know, I think it's something like about 400 companies control about 80% of all the trade in the world. And Unilever are at the forefront of that transition. And of course, there are quite a few things that uh, uh, there is maybe a potential compromise in some of my values in terms of what they might do and what I might see as a worldview. But my experience of working with them is that there is a group of very professional, talented people that are looking at changing a a long historical error in some areas into a future uh, positive. So I don't know. Yeah, no. I can't be a spokesperson. I'm with you on that, actually. Uh, No, no, you can't be. But, well, you know, you're in there. You're in the little family there. But I I can't really represent all of the things they do because I don't know the details. But I just am confident that they're they're committed and showing evidence of making the changes needed. I know when we when we uh, changed our whole business model to work with businesses in this new way with this belief system that we have the heart of of us. I was the same. I was like, well, I can't work with them because they're this. And then you go, actually, that's where the change needs to happen. Yeah. So if even if my little voice does something that changes ten percent of that business, that's better than not, isn't it? It seriously is, and I think we all. You know, it's up to us to help these big businesses change. A lot of them want to. A lot of them are trapped in this sort of vicious cycle of having to Mm. compete on cheapness. There is like a sort of race to the bottom. They're driven in this trap. And that is partly because in food, which I know a bit more about, it it is you are subsidised to use the drug nitrogen and pesticides to get greater yields. And, you know, they're, 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 they're stuck in this cycle and we've, we've got to find a way to legislate out of it, I think. But I genuinely believe it is very easy to just go into a binary, they're good, and, you know, they're bad. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. personally, there's, you know, people in my family that I deeply love, but I don't share all their values, but it doesn't mean I can't align and agree and sit around a table with them. You know, yes. so to me... Or talk to them, or talk to them as well about what you believe in. It just, it gets out there, you know. My children are sometimes, oh, God, she's banging on again. But they're there. I mean, my daughter's gone into exactly this, into food policy and looking at how we do it. So it does go in. The more you go on, the more you, so you can sit around the table and you've just got to keep talking about this stuff. I love, for me, I love that. For me, it is a conversation. And so much of what I have learned through being very fortunate to set up a small idea that's become a big, a big reality is is that you you can you know 
it's from reading other people's experiences, it's from talking to other people and, and getting that inspiration, really, along the way. I, I know we can make the changes we need to. We don't, what's so frustrating, Mary, is we live in this time that we know everything, we, well, not, maybe not everything, but we know a lot about what we need to do to change. Um, and that can be a bit daunting, I think. It's a bit like, oh, we know all these problems with the environment or with social inequality. But at least we know it. And through knowing it and the diagnosis, we can then make a plan to get out of it. And I, you can hear what's going on with the children's strikes, uh, youth climate movements, B Corp. There's some epic things going on. And I, I, I'm with you that I feel totally excited, you know, daunted, apprehensive, but excited about the future and the possibility for positive change. So do I. And people often say to me, God, you know, how do you find in this, even, even the COVID time? And, I, you know, we've been, you know, really hit by this as well. And I'm like, actually... This is the biggest message that's coming to us. And I wouldn't change what we're going through here. And I do feel this excitement that this new, this energy, it, it's a, a shift that you can feel coming through. And you can still see those businesses that are trying to hang on by their little fat fingers and behaving in the old way. And I, I get asked so many times, you know, to go on radio, look at those poor businesses that have gone down. And I'm like, those were yesterday's. I mean, it's terrible for people losing their jobs, but you can feel the crumbling of the old world. And we just got to keep pushing at that door. Listen, a, a question. I was thinking about this. We're, we're a country of tea drinkers, aren't we? Well, we. Why haven't we got tea shops in the UK? What's that about? When I go to Australia, they have all these tea shops and we don't. What, what, why don't we? All those coffee shops. What, what is it? I think, you know, tea was the sort of everyday drink and coffee became a bit glamorous, didn't it, in the 80s and 90s? I don't really know, to be honest. I don't really know. There are some good, there are some good tea shops in Bristol. We've got Boston Tea Party. We've got a few, a few around, but it's not sort of a national chain as such. Get Unilever to do one. Say to them, listen, I've got this idea. And you could put it all into the areas that are deprived and need this. And you could have this chat connection, social space... You do it at a decent price. What a great marketing tool. And you go pucker, whatever you call it. And we actually put them in because there is something. And also, you know, I think back to my childhood, you know, you always wanted to, when life got a bit hectic, my mum would say, would you love a cup of tea? She's a good Irish woman. And she used to brew the tea up in a pot that I don't know how long that was sitting there. <laughs> Have you ever been to Ireland? Have you ever been to Ireland and watched how they, they keep the tea on the stove? No, but I could imagine. And I've had a few strong brews in my time. And uh, it's a great cuppa, isn't it? Black tea is, you know, it's a great thing. But it's, you know, it has become a commodity crop, hasn't it? It's just one one ingredient. And so I, there's so much more variety people can enjoy in their diet and through through different drinks. But I think your idea is a great one, Mary. You're painting it as a, it's so easy. I, I love the magic wand idea that you can just uh, no, dream easy. up your dream. But it's true to follow it. I think dream your dream and follow it. And I think it's a great idea. And um, I do, yeah. you know. But if Unilever, we said to him, Unilever, I, I, I was on a, com, a, 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 a talk with your head of, your CMO at Unilever, and she was great. So a global talk. The one be something if we were able to put these brilliant brands that are making a difference that are now you know actually part of those big corporations that can influence what could we do in those deprived areas yeah we could do tea with crashes so people who can't you know just want to meet mothers who want to get out have got kids that could connect oh listen we'll, we'll have an off-site talk about this <laughs> it's gonna happen i think we should it's gonna happen you know we're just based in a 
in Canesham outside Bristol on our own. You know, Pucker, we, we, we run our own ship, basically. We, we, run our, we run our own value chain. We run everything. So, you know, we, we're, we're independent in our thoughts. So we could create one in Canesham where we are would be a nice thing. Yeah. I mean, look, I think then you can go to local councils. I'm going to get together all the people that come on the Kindness Economy uh, podcast and we'll think of these great ideas. And then we can we can go together to the businesses or, you know, to local government and see whether we could make change. A question I always ask everybody, and I think you're an optimist. You're an optimist, aren't you? I, I, I've tried to be a realist, but I can't help being an optimist. Yeah. yeah. But I think realism and optimism is great, though. That's another good mix. I, was, I, I love, there's a name of a podcast which I keep talking about, which is called Outrage and Optimism. And I think you've got to have that bit of outrage to go, this is just, I've got to make change. Um, I used to get angry and it's not a good thing. I said, oh, that, that just is a wasted energy. But that outrage, then you put it into optimism. I love those two. And I was speaking to James and he says he has cynicism and optimism. And you've got realism. And optimism, Sebastian. Yeah, I've I've got a bit of a problem with cynicism, not with regards to uh, James, but uh, <laughs> cynicism. You know, it's very easy to judge, isn't it? What you don't know about other people in the yeah. situation they're in. And I, I suppose, my experience of life has told me that in the main, people are good. I've been very privileged to travel the world and meet people from all status yeah. and sections and classes and everything. And I just find generally people have got a positive intent and desire particularly, sorry to use a gardening metaphor, but it's a bit like with your team at work. You know, I feel, do feel that, you know, if you plant people like plants in the right place, in the right soil, the right environment, and they're watered and nurtured properly, they flourish. You know, how we can create those conditions is obviously life's challenge for us individually, with our family and with our community. But that principle is something I yeah, always try and think about when I'm, whether I'm treating a patient or whether I'm with a member of staff or, or a friend. I think that's that's the sort of value. I, we, we, I use that metaphor many a time, a little gardening one. I love the idea of, um, I love to think of businesses and um, people flourishing within it and your business like little sunflowers and their head goes up to the sun. You know, it's just a wonderful little vision. I think. Yeah, I don't know if my staff would always agree. <laughs> oh, God, mine do sometimes. If, uh, listen, I, I, this is the other thing. You know, when we talk about the kindness economy, everybody thinks we're going to be sitting there like, you know, Mother Teresa or going on. No, this is about what's doing right. This is about what's doing fair. And this is about following this instinct and this light within us that we all have that just goes, mm. that doesn't feel right. But there are times I go well off piste and, and we're like, oh, my God, you know, but I'm actually fighting for something I believe in. I might be going a bit over the top in it and there might be a few effing and jeffing going on. Still happens. I'm not going to change that much. So my question to you, Sebastian, is what hope do you have for business in five years time? How do you see it? How, how would not just how you. Not just how you hope to see businesses in five years, what do you think it would be? How do you think mm. business will be five years from now? I mean, for me, it's always been about service. Business has always been about serving a greater, higher purpose, a, yeah. you know, something, a, a bigger reason, serving society. I, I do think that businesses that don't move in that direction will suffer commercially. And I think even if it's purely on commercial terms, the FD and the CEOs will, will look at how to optimize that but i i also feel there's a sort of shift in awareness in human nature around how people want to spend their lives their professional career you know we spend most of our time at work um how they want to contribute to the changes we know we need to make in society 
I mean, what I'd love to see is that every business in the world became a B Corp. That would be a good commitment. So in your articles of association, you're committing to serving society and uh, the planet as well as profit. Um, I'd love to see the whole food industry sign up to a ethical and environmentally and socially sound way of farming. And um, I'm leaving the fashion industry to you. Oh, you've left me with a <laughs> you've left me with a right old difficult one. I'm trying. I uh, really am. I've just become. Oh, look, he's got his tea bag out. I've just. I know, but that's my uh, that's my organic string to show you that we're involved in uh, organic. Co- uh, uh, Cotton cultivation. (laughs) Sebastian, it's been such a pleasure. Give my love to that part of the world where you are. I'll be going down there soon. I can't wait. Well, there's a lovely frequency and an energy. Do you believe in that in places? Oh, definitely. There's no doubt, is there? When you go somewhere, you can feel a different imprint of what has happened there in the past to a certain degree. Um, Wouldn't say I'm the most sensitive, but yeah, I love the feeling down in the West Country for sure. Sebastian's um, down in for anyone listening in the West Country, and I, I have a little place down there which just called to me, and it's where so much activism, you know, comes out of. And um, now putting that into something that's really having an effect on the world is the most important thing. It's been a pleasure, and I love the licorice ones. That's my favourite. So you know, if you're thinking of sending me a box, the licorice ones and the ones with <laughs> cardamom. Whoa, loving that. Lovely well, that's man. a special, a special herb, Gardamum. And it? We're really nice to meet you and, and have a great chat. Yeah, and, great uh, to Yeah, I hope you. that's useful. All right, you take Thank care. Thank you, Sebastian. Thanks, Mary. Bye. Next week, I'm joined by Vestiaire co-founder Fanny Moison, who's taking the world of fashion and turning its relentless pursuit for newness on its head. Millions are now part of Vestiaire's resale community. She says, we want to address our consumers as proper fashion activists who are not afraid of this word. It's a big word. But we truly think that now what we're doing is basically empowering people to change the industry. Let's not be afraid of the word. And we are trying to educate them to slow the pace and reduce waste and to invest in quality and just stop this newness frenzy. That's Fanny Moison with me, Mary Portis, on The Kindness Economy. Do subscribe now and also leave us a review because we're doing terribly well. Mm